Hello everyone, my name is Sophia and welcome back to another episode of Project Oyster. Before we begin today, we want to recognize that there's been a lot of darkness and mourning in our world recently, but we hope that by listening to this episode, you can find a little bit of joy in your day. Today, we actually have a really special episode that our team has been planning for a while now, and we are super excited to be sharing this with you guys. But first, I would like to introduce my co-host for this episode, who is Dr. Bharat Sympathy. Some of you may recognize him as the guest on our last episode, but to give a little more background, Bharat is a first-year psychiatry resident at Kaiser Permanente in San Jose. After graduating from Gunn High School in 2010, Bharat received his BA in economics from Wayne State University and his MD from University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. As also touched upon in our last episode, growing up, Bharat experienced multiple youth suicide clusters in Palo Alto that ultimately led to his interest in child and adolescent psychiatry. With that being said, Bharat, how are you today and what have you been up to recently? Hey, Sophia. I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, I'm finishing up my first year of residency at Kaiser right now. I've got about two weeks left. Uh, it's been a crazy year with uh, COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Right now in the hospital, we're not letting any... Um, family in, uh, which has been weird. So that all halls are empty. It's just us and the patients. But uh, in about two weeks, I head into second year, which is um, more strictly psychiatry. So I'm mm -hmm. definitely looking forward to that in terms of my training. Cool. Yeah. So has COVID affected your, I guess, residency? Yeah. So for about a two months, I was doing all of my outpatient medicine through telehealth. Uh, because we weren't allowing patients to come in and see us in person to decrease the risk of infection. And that was weird because you can't really do a physical exam. So yeah. I was prescribing antibiotics for ear infections, you know, without looking for inflammation in the ear. Mm -hmm. uh, very bizarre to me. But uh, I think it was, I mean, it's good that we had that in place to, to make sure we can minimize uh, contact between people. Yeah, so I guess this has been a good learning process for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, but nice to hear that you're doing well. Um, so along with our guest co-host, our main guest today is also someone who many, if not all of you guys will recognize by name, activist and author of the award-winning memoir, I Know My Name, Chanel Miller, is here to talk to us today. Chanel Miller is a writer and artist who received her BA in literature from University of California, Santa Barbara. Her critically acclaimed memoir, Know My Name, was a New York Times bestseller, a New York Times book-reviewed notable book, and a National Book Critics Circle Award winner, as well as a best book of 2019 in Time, The Washington Post, The Chicago Tribune, NPR, and people, among others. She is a 2019 Time Next 100 honoree and a 2016 Glamour Woman of the Year honoree under her pseudonym, Emily Doe. She graduated from Gunn in 2010 and now lives in New York City. Uh, Chanel, thank you for being so open to virtually being with us here today. And how are you doing? Thank you, Sophia and Barat. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. I'm good. I'm in New York City. I'm getting used to the thunderstorms and humidity and uh -huh. centipedes. <laughs> centipedes are new. I'm walking a lot of loops around my neighborhood and getting to explore. So that's good going to protests. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Did you move to New York recently? I remember you talking about that. Yeah. Um, the weekend before lockdown was announced. So all of my apartment showings were being canceled. <laughs> this was the last wow. apartment we were shown. <laughs> so we're like, all right, this one. <laughs> um, well, yeah, yeah, I guess you're enjoying New York in a different way. But um, um, yeah, I'm glad you're that you're doing well. Thank you. 
Yeah. So um, Barat, many of our listeners are probably wondering why you're co-hosting this episode with me today. So would you and Chanel like to talk about how you guys know each other and also <laughs> yeah, how we all got here to be here today? <laughs> yeah. So Chanel and I went to uh, middle school and high school together. Um, we had a few uh, mutual friends, kind of lost touch after high school, um, but particularly about a month ago, I was I was running and thinking about how I can further the discussion of um, mental health, especially youth mental health in the community, because ultimately every conversation is a step forward in mitigating the stigma surrounding mental illness. And at the time I was reading Chanel's book and I was on a particular chapter where she had gone into uh, her youth experiences. And I was like, wait a minute here, Uh, Chanel and I know each other. (laughs) <laughs> and Gunn has this amazing platform to discuss adolescent mental health. So I was like, you know, why don't I just reach out to Chanel? And one kind of memory that that resonates with me that I remember Chanel is uh, middle in middle school, we were on the same basketball team. Um, sorry, not on the same basketball team, but we were, we were both on the A teams. Um, and uh, Chanel was just like so much taller than everyone. And there was one game. <laughs> I was watching where she was playing center and she had these really funny looking multicolored socks that like went past her knees. She had this huge grin on her face and she won the opening tip like without even jumping. She was just so much taller than everyone else. <laughs> and I think just that grin and just her carefree personality made me actually feel like, hey, you know, if I and her kindness made me feel like if I reach out, this actually might happen. So kudos to your publicist for actually reading my email. I'm sure they get a bunch of emails. And also, I really appreciate you, Chanel, kind of taking the time to to hear me out and see how our discussion could benefit uh, the Bay Area community. Um, let's see, am I missing anything? But uh, nope, that's pretty much how Chanel and I got back in touch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chanel, like, how do you react to that? Like, obviously, when you hear that your middle school, high school classmate reached out to you to do this. Oh, well, first of all, that was a very generous interpretation of how I played basketball. <laughs> I remember someone told me that when I run, I run with like floppy wrists. And that's all I remember from basketball. <laughs> oh, man. Um, Brat was really good, too, by the way. Um, yeah. And I was talking to Brat about, I don't know why I have this memory, but him eating lava cake at Chili's right off El Camino. <laughs> That's so oddly specific. I know. Oh, yeah. So just some deep bonding activities. Um, yeah, it's so cool to be with you all. It's so cool that Brat's a doctor. Like hearing doctor is so, <laughs> it's just a reminder that we've become people, <laughs> like real people in the world. Yeah. It just really continues to be trippy, and I'm just so happy for what you all are doing and wish this existed during our time because I think during our time, there was so much shock and Mm -hmm. there was no language um, to process. And I think it only occurred to us much later on how much we had internalized from those experiences Mm. and how formative those experiences were. I know for me in the book, you know, I submitted the first draft of the manuscript and I had written about the assault and all the court proceedings. 
my editor came back to me and she said, you know, what are, what are some other formative experiences in your life? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I'm sure you've, you know, experienced some kind of trauma before or some kind of pivotal moment, um, which informed the way you react to things, how you process things, you know, what signals you get about how to move forward and ask for help. And um, until then, I hadn't, I hadn't really sat down to think about everything that had happened at Gun, And when I did, all these memories started coming back. Um, and I realized a lot of the signaling I got during that time was to not address what was happening. Um, and that the quicker you can return to normalcy, the better. Um, I just didn't have any of the tools I needed to cope. I didn't understand how valuable it was to carve out time for coping. Um, and I, I felt continually like if you are taking time to process, you are falling behind, which is never the case. So all of that would be learned later on, but it was really only in the last few years that I started to reevaluate, you know, everything that we'd been through. I think that was true for you too, brought hearing your podcast and hearing, you know, your brother um, resurfacing those experiences in his life and you starting to reckon with what an impact they had had. Yeah. And I think I, I agree completely, Chanel, you know, I think until my brother lost his best friend to suicide in 2015, I hadn't really taken the time to process either of the suicide clusters. But now that I had been a bit, a little bit older, I was a first year medical student at the time. That's when I kind of went through the entire reflective process. And I started identifying mental illness as an important issue that needs to be addressed. And it had been something that I really hadn't thought about at all um, mm -hmm. up to that point. So, you know, I think it's interesting that we both had similar experiences where we went through high school experiencing, you know, obstacles and, and kind of process them and learn from them a little bit later on in life. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, Palo Alto and gun high school in general, um, I think is a lot in the same phases as you guys were. Obviously, I was a young kid during the suicide clusters that happened during your high school times. I remember at that time, just being a kid, I remember my parents talking about it. But whenever I entered the room or something, they'd be like, oh, shh, shh, like we shouldn't talk mm. about that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was always something I knew that happened, but no one ever talked to me about. And so by the time that I entered high school, um, probably five, six years later, I didn't know how to, like, I thought that it was no longer a problem. And I thought that that was something that we just didn't talk about. And then the same thing happened. Um, there was a suicide at the start of my sophomore year. And that's when I realized, oh, wait, like, it's not that the problem doesn't exist. It's that people just don't talk about it enough, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that um, Gun and Paul Alto, since you guys were students, has definitely put a lot of effort into um, addressing uh, youth mental health. Because I think that, Chanel, you mentioned how you wish that when you were in high school, there was something like Project Oyster where people were able to share their experiences and stories. But mm -hmm. I also think that 
um, Palo Alto in the last few years has definitely fostered a better environment that allows for things like Project Oyster to exist. Because I think that there was at least a little bit of an opening of these days, people being willing to have to talk about these things, which really allowed Project Oyster to, I guess, bloom, um, because now people are more receptive, while in the past, I think they were definitely a lot more closed off. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Just based off also my experience, comparing it to my brother's experience six years later, I think all of the uh, triaging that was set in place uh, for students to cope with loss uh, was very solidified um, by the time my brother uh, entered high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think there's still a lot of work to be done, but I, it like talking to you two has made me realize that there actually has been a lot of progress in the past just um, 10 years, I guess. And uh, it's nice to see what our community has done to come together and address these issues. Totally. Definitely. Yeah. Um, with all that being said, Brat, would you like to kick us off with some questions, I guess, for Chanel? Yeah, Chanel. So uh, obviously, again, amazing book. And there's certain parts of that book that uh, really stood out to me. And well, first of all, the first three words of the book, uh, I am shy, <laughs> stood out to me. <laughs> And later in the book, there's a passage where you kind of expand and you say this. I'm going to start reading it. Mm -hmm. The distancing from my body did not begin with assault, but in a world where self-confidence is already doled out sparingly to young women, my supply quickly diminished in court. I spent my adolescence soaking in oatmeal baths for my eczema. A boy called me a cheetah, so I used Sally Hansen spray tans to cover to paint over my spotted, discolored skin. I wore peach-colored pantyhose in high school, a purchased epidermis. College was the first time I started wearing dresses. Still, my relationship with my body remained half-hearted. So from this expert excerpt, uh, and during certain segments of your book, I, strength, I sensed a strong sense of insecurity surrounding your self-image starting at an early age. And it got me thinking that insecurities and even on a broader scale, mental illness can affect people in so many different ways. And I wanted to ask you is, what I wanted to ask you is how was how you physically perceived yourself something you struggled with in high school? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, when I think back on this 17 year old version of me, like I'd never kissed anybody. I'd never been to a party. I had flaring eczema. <laughs> like in PE, I never wore shorts. I always wear sweatpants, even on the hottest days. Um, I still had braces. I remember I had a van that didn't have AC, had a CD player, no aux cord. And I would drive my like stinky little van and putter over to Gentle Dental, which was right next to Piazza's, and have my orthodontist appointment. (laughs) And this was like my daily life. Like that was my world. And junior year, I remember I didn't have a prom date. Like one of my ankles was broken. So I was wearing this black boot. I don't know if you remember, but I had it for like a year. Um, And you know how the boot, it's not an actual boot. Like you're that your toes are exposed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you wear a little sock. And so I went to prom wearing this boot with 
wearing pantyhose. <laughs> and then like, I have memories of like walking to gun every morning in my boot. I would walk through the field behind Terman to get to gun and the morning dew from the grass would like soak my little sock and I'd be eating my Costco bagel. Like this was <laughs> thinking back. I was like, my life was so small and so lame, <laughs> <laughs> but I had no sense of like confidence I never thought at that time that I would identify as an activist or someone who is outspoken. Um, I never volunteered to be in assemblies like the homecoming games and never volunteered for that. My whole goal was to stay out of the spotlight. Um, so yeah, I looking back, I, I thought at 17, yes, I'm independent. I have a grasp of what life is. And that's all valid, but now I realize like I I had no idea how much of myself that there was left to develop. And then I was only really exercising like a fraction of my my being, you know, and that um I don't the basis of my being was there. And I'm still similar in a lot of ways. Um, but there was so much there was so much left to do and be that I didn't understand at that time. Yeah. And it's great that you touch on that. And that reminded me of one part of my own high school experience when, uh, <laughs> you know, I was like, I took basketball very seriously and mm -hmm. I'm glad to have experienced um, quite a bit of success during our time there, especially my junior year. We had a really good team, but when I think about it now, my drive to play and perform in basketball was was rooted in feelings of inadequacy, um, feeling that if I didn't perform to a certain level, I wasn't worthy of being who I was. And, mm. you know, it's it's interesting how, you know, when people are in high school, mental illness and insecurities can affect people in every in so many different ways that are unique to their life. And with that being said, I wanted to ask you if you feel like in Palo Alto, people tend to gravitate towards pinning mental illness on academic pressure and in some ways undermining, undermining other contributing factors, you know, self-image, sexuality, relationships, you know, even racism, especially in light of recent events. What do you think, Chanel? Totally. I think, you know, there are plenty of successful people who are miserable. Um, and I think you know, suicidal ideation or, you know, getting to a super low point is a result of feeling like you're stuck inside a narrative or stuck inside ideas of yourself that have become unbearable and that you do not believe will change, right? So if you mm -hmm. think about me when I was 17, braces, no relationships, um, a boot and a van. And then if you think about me when I was 23, this was in 2015. Um, I had been assaulted at the beginning of the year. I had left my job. I had come home to Palo Alto in October to testify for the first time in the preliminary hearing um, at the little courthouse, which is right off of California Avenue. And a month after that, testimony was our five-year reunion and that mm. took place at the nut house which is a bar on california avenue 
And I remember not wanting to go because from the parking lot of the nut house, you can see the courthouse. And I ended up going. I showed up really late and I wanted to see everyone. But I remember just speaking to everyone and feeling so alone because not a single person in the room knew that, number one, I was lying about the job that I was talking to them about. Mm -hmm. None of them knew that my life was unfolding inside that little courthouse. Um, And I remember walking away from that night and thinking there are only two options in my life moving forward. One is that I never tell anyone what happened and I remain isolated in my head forever, you know, keeping the secret, which is a terrible feeling. Or two, I tell everyone what happened, but I'm forever branded. You know, I'll I'll have more online harassment. It will affect all my jobs in the future and everyone will know. And so at the time, I had such a limited ability to see beyond my current circumstances. And I could not envision a future where I would be happy. And I think the hardest part was that I was stuck inside a story I did not want. And I think regardless of how successful you are, or whatever you're doing in the external world, if you are in a narrative where you feel like this is not my story, this is not how life is supposed to be. Um, and I feel like there's no alternate route. That's when things get really dark. And I also think that I, there's never a time that I said, I hate life itself. Like objectively, I could always appreciate life. I could always appreciate that sunsets at Half Moon Bay are beautiful, that, you know, donuts from Happy Donuts are delicious at four in the morning. <laughs> like all of these things I knew were wonderful. And it's not, oh, I hate life. Life sucks. It's that the pain was that I recognized life was beautiful, but that I, in my current circumstances, would never be able to access it like other people would. And I think that's where the devastation comes from, is you see people around you who are seem like they're functioning and getting by and participating in life, and you're in this glass box that you cannot escape because you're depressed or you don't know what the next day will look like or you don't know what to do. And um, what I tell myself in these times, when I told myself at that time, I said, if you kill yourself, you are killing not only your current self, you are killing all of your past selves. You're killing the you at 17. You're killing the you who is eight years old. And you're also killing all the future selves, all the selves that you could one day be. And that's not fair to all your different selves. And so whenever I don't like my current circumstances, I just think you just do not like this current version of you, but there are going to be so many different versions of you. And if you you know, cut off this current version, then all of those other selves will never get a chance to be seen or to exist. And I think um, that's what we need to see is that we, like you, you know, like 
you, you're still Bharat, <laughs> but you're mm-hmm. a much different Bharat than you were 10 years ago. And I think no matter moving forward, how successful we are or how well we do in our jobs, all that matters is we continue to revisit who we are in the present. And if we don't like who we are in the present, recognize that it will change. And if we are happy in the present, then that's wonderful, you know, embrace that. But the point is that we will always be in transition and nothing is fixed. Absolutely. And I think one thing I would add to that, which we, which you clearly said yourself is um, there is no norm, you know, to what you're experiencing. And, you know, with social media, people posting pretty much just happy pictures can feed into feelings of insecurity, feeling like what you're experiencing isn't valid. But I think it's important for listeners to understand that no matter what your circumstances, it is valid and it matters. And I think once you can accept that, it gets a little bit easier to see that this is who you are now and change will happen and you'll get through this becoming a stronger, more resilient person. I think that, um, yeah, that everything the two of you just said really resonated with me because, you know, I'm a part of this podcast, but I'm also just a 17 year old high schooler or soon to be college student. Um, And hearing you, Chanel, talk about what you thought you were when you were 17 versus who you are now and who you became and how life is very transitionary. I think that was very important for even just myself personally to hear. Um, Because I think a lot of high schoolers get stuck thinking that the person they are now will never change. And that makes them very sad. Um, So yeah, that that was really nice for me to hear as a high school student that you know, your life can be so different in five, 10 years. I mean, the two of you are clearly, yeah, very different people than you were 10 years ago, even though you guys go by the same name. Um, and Yeah, yeah and, and there will be ups and downs, you know, it's not just going to be in a linear trajectory upwards, you know, you might feel like you're really improving as a person. And then, you know, something happens and you fall flat on your face. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's about taking things in stride and understanding that it's not going to be a, the growth isn't going to be without obstacles. Um, yeah. 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 And I also like, I think so much of your success will depend on your ability to adjust, not Mm -hmm. to simply do well, because I, everyone we know by this point has been through something monumental and Mm -hmm. no matter how well you are doing, there are so many external factors that can happen that you never accounted for. Right. And how you come through is going to depend on your ability to adjust to your new circumstances. So I think, yeah, part of it's having a plan and having some idea of who you want to be, but a lot of it is just being able to shape yourselves around what whatever will happen in your life. I mean, that's life. And I think, you know, now I think of it like if you're a little car and you're driving in fog and you have your headlights on, that's as far as you can see. Mm-hmm. And that will always be how far we can see. Like we know the present and we may know a little bit more, but beyond that, you can't really say um, what will happen. And I, I just encourage, especially younger people, not to draw boundaries around their life because I think we underestimate how much we change. Um 
Yeah. And then I also just as an Asian American, I think when we're growing up, we're given limited ideas of the roles we can take on. Like we don't have the privilege of seeing ourselves in positions of power all the time or even in creative positions all the time. And so I think um, growing up, I didn't envision that I could become a legitimate author or artist. And that's not true. It just required a little more imagination to see myself in those positions. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Chanel, for that, you know, really in-depth response. And, you know, I think that reminds me of my next question. Um, You know, back in high school, I didn't even know there was a possibility of being able to see a, a counselor to talk about the concept of mental health. Part of that was probably my own ignorance. But uh, in your book, you mentioned um, going to see a counselor briefly and feeling very uncomfortable doing it. Um, and I was wondering, as a teenager, was there any stigma surrounding mental health in your life? Um, yeah. I mean, I I always, for whatever reason, assigned mental health or you know, quote unquote, big issues to adults, like adults are the ones who are allowed to have problems. Whereas anything we were experiencing was sort of on par with adolescence. Um, I also think it's difficult when you're, I think it's harder for kids in high school because your life is so linear, right? You're literally going 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. Your life is measured in quarters. So if you take a quarter off, that's a big deal, right? And Mm -hmm. there's so much pressure for you to be exponentially growing and taking these stepping stones that don't really allow for breaks. And maybe you take a gap year, but that's only after you turn 18. And then when you get to real life, you realize there can be whole years where you're just depressed or not productive. Like I had a year and a half that I was depressed and unemployed. And I'm still okay now, you know, Mm -hmm. and I read so many memoirs in preparation for writing my own. And I remember one book, I think by Joan Didion, and she said there was like a single line about her 20s. She was like, in my 20s, I felt like this and I did this and then moved on. And I was like, oh, my, like the entire decade that I'm living right now could one day be a single sentence in a book. You know what I mean? It's like, it's all perspective. And when you're young, obviously you can't, you can't zoom out that much um, because everything is so immediate and urgent and raw. Like everything you're going through is for the first time. So those feelings are extra potent, but I think, um, just like letting up on yourself. If you have a bad quarter, it's okay. And I mean, at gun specifically, I remember for graduation, if you had above a three point something GPA for a certain number of quarters, you would get that golden tassel. Mm. And I did not meet that requirement. And I remember, I remember going to the main office where they posted in the window, like who needed to pick up their tassel and I was like, someone's going to see that my name's not on the list and realize that I'm stupid, you know, or that I'm a fraud. And then even on graduation day where you're supposed to be celebrating life and the fact that you've made it through 
for years. Um, the whole thing, I'm just, the whole time I'm just fixating on the fact that there's not a yellow piece of string dangling from my head and worried that that is an accurate representation of my worth and intelligence, which is, which is so absurd to me now. But I do think at that time we had these units of measurement to evaluate ourselves. And I, I truly wish I had just been easier on myself. Yeah. And I think uh, I went through the exact same thing. I definitely did not get that gold uh, uh, ribbon or necklace. I didn't get it either. <laughs> what? Uh, so, yeah. And um, we should have like come up with our own tassel. I know we should have just made our own, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you but know, I, the participation trophies in sports. Everyone yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, that reminds So I had an experience with my counselor when we were putting, t- well, you know, the counselors have to write a, um, a letter of rec for some of the schools. And she was asking, <laughs> uh, oh, what percentage am I in uh, for uh, my class? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, and uh, she was like, kind of went quiet. And I was like, am I top 10%? And she's like, oh, no, no. And I was like, oh, oh, uh, top, top t- uh, 25? And she's like, uh, no, uh, you're, you're top 50. And I was like, oh, uh, wow, I'm definitely not telling my parents this. <laughs> But the the funny thing is, you know, it always works out. Like my goal was to be a doctor and I made it. And Chanel, I know creativity was a big part in your life. And now you're an author. And I think you want to move forward being a children's author if I'm not um, misspeaking. But uh, what happens in high school doesn't define you. And I think that's a very important um, thing to to say and remind teens, especially because it's hard to understand that when you're actually going through the process. Yeah. And like, you should also note that, I mean, for me, I remember there's four lanes of math, right? Like everyone knew (laughs) what lane everybody was in, but in English, there's only technically two lanes. Like there's honors or like AP, but I was like, damn, if there was four lanes of English, I'd be in the top lane. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I just, no one gave a hoot if I could analyze all quiet on the Western front and tell you motifs, you know, it was like, it was so difficult for me because I wanted to prove that like, there's things that I love and things that I'm good at. I just don't know how to explain it. And I think in high school or in school in general, you, there are answers to everything, right? Like in the back of the textbook, those are your answers, but there's always an answer to your question. And I think when the suicides happened and I saw the teachers reacting the way they seemed so removed or shocked, I realized they do not have answers. And in life, we will enter a realm where things will not be so clean cut, um, where so many of the answers will the questions we'll be asking ourselves will not have straightforward answers, you know, and that's like life stuff. And I was so much more fascinated in that and wanted to invest myself in that. And I think there's no shame in wanting to, to not know things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I studied writing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in terms of out entering these realms of uncertainty, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you cope with stress? I know there's a lot of different ways, but what what do you use that kind of creates a, a safe space for you to kind of de-stress and and be yourself? Um, again, just acknowledging the fact that coping needs to happen, which I think is a first step. A lot of us don't even take. And so even for writing, you know, I was given an advance and I say, go off and come back with 90,000 words. And I thought, okay, I'm going to work eight hours a day, like a regular job. But I didn't factor in that I was going to have to do so much processing Mm. um, that it's not just writing. It's not just work. Like you have to literally wait for things to pass through um, your body and react to them and sit with them and let them rock you. Like there was no way I was going to show up and string words together in a cohesive way most of the days. So the book, you know, you have the final product and it's nice. The pacing's good. You know, it's a solid object that reads as cohesive. But the process of getting that book out meant that there were weeks at a time where I would do nothing. And that was not a result of my laziness or unproductivity. It was simply a result of being a human who was devastated by what I was finding out Mm. and just allowing myself to marinate in those feelings so that I could um, come back and, you know, face them. Mm -hmm. And how about, you know, so you've been doodling for a long time um, and your Instagram stories are stories slash posts are are awesome, right? Because you have your own flair to your doodles and they always have this this interesting morale that you can take away from them. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering when that started and if, if drawing and creativity, I think I read an article where you, you, you drew on your, your wall at home or something like that. Um, if how drawing factored into your ability to cope with stress. Totally. So I was writing the book. It was really difficult that first year. And I remember my therapist saying, go do something that's just fun. Like, don't forget that (laughs) life, you're supposed to be enjoying life. Um, And so I signed up for this narrative illustration, basically a cartooning class at a community college in San Francisco. So I'd write during the daytime and I would go to this little cartooning class at night and I started making diary comics. Mm -hmm. And since so much of my writing was taking place in the past and was very memory heavy and trauma heavy I would make these little diary comics to reflect on like little things I'd experienced in the day whether it was like a warm bowl of ramen or a call I'd had just these small interactions that get lost in the grand scheme of things that but that are very lovely and that also are showing you that things are changing in very subtle ways that your life is moving forward and things continue to happen, even though you feel like you're stuck in the past a lot of the time. So um, I just love doing these little vignettes. And also, you know, this format takes a lot of the pressure off of having a very polished final product. It's more about sitting down at the end of the day and thinking about what the day gave me and then releasing it 
and then doing it again the next day. Yeah. And touching on that, I think when people are stressed, depressed, anxious, it's it's uh, common for uh, it to be recommended that, you know, oh, go exercise. It'll make you feel better, which <laughs> is definitely it's definitely true. Right. From yeah. a neurobiological standpoint, you're releasing endorphins and serotonin. And after a long run, you do feel better. But there are so many other ways to handle stress and cope and and times when you just need a break. And so I, I thank you, Chanel, for sharing kind of your your experience going to art school and then using art as a form of uh, and art and creativity as a form of coping um, mm -hmm. in your life. And uh, you also touched on the fact that you had a therapist and I wanted to ask you um because in your book, you say on multiple occasions, you talk about the importance of therapy. It helped you during your experience in the courtroom. It helped you through the grueling process of writing a book. And I wanted to ask you how therapy has helped you, especially for some who may be on the fence about seeing someone or refraining from getting a therapist due, this, due to the stigma that surrounds mental health in general. Yeah, I think therapy was incredible for me because... I am so obsessed with protecting other people and also ensuring that I'm not a burden. And I think you need a role in your life that's specifically designated to listen to you, who you, the therapist is like a vessel and you can tell them anything and their job is to listen without judgment and you don't have to worry about preserving their well-being or worrying about, oh, am I checking in with how, how they're doing? You know, are they going to be able to handle this? You know, they've been trained to handle this. And so it was the first time in my life where I could actually focus on myself without guilt and without constantly assessing, you know, whether I'm adequately taking care of the person who's sitting across from me. I also think the difference between someone who's in therapy and someone who's not in therapy is not that one has problems and one doesn't. It's that one addresses their problems and one does not. <laughs> and so it's like, we're all going through something. And it's just a matter of bringing those some things to the surface and being able to confront them. You know, I think, um, I don't know, every time there's a moment of crisis or a major loss in your life, you've probably felt this, but it's almost like this window opens and it's like all the tiny things fall away. Like all the little things you were worried about, all the petty, whatever falls away. And suddenly you're just sitting with big picture things, like just wanting to be with the people you love and thinking about what life is actually about and what we're doing here. And it's this as tragic as these moments are, is this beautiful time where you can, where you're not so zoomed in and focus on just like the day-to-day -day grind. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I think there's never, there's never a time in one's life where there isn't something they can talk about and process with a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very easy for some people to say is, oh, you know, my life is fine. You know, I don't really need to talk to anyone. Um, 
But when you really delve into it with someone who's trained in the profession, you start to realize even just small things affect you in certain ways. And taking the time to talk through those small things can really be valuable to how you handle yourself in terms of self-awareness and ultimate strength and happiness moving moving forward. So I think it's very important that you touched on that, Chanel. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I would like to, I guess, ask Bra. I also remember I asked this during my episode with you, but mm-hmm. um, I asked, you know, a lot of the times, maybe it's, it's probably not just an Asian American thing, but I know specifically in the Asian culture, like mental health is first of all, not really addressed. It Mm -hmm. is now, but I think um, compared to a lot of other cultures, Asian Americans don't um, aren't as educated or aren't as proactive about taking care of their mental health. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, you know, um, like I have a therapist now, but it took Mm -hmm. me like, over a year to get that because Mm -hmm. I think just telling my parents was such a process and also the fact that they didn't really know what mental health was and all of Mm -hmm. that. So I think there's a lot of stigma against mental health, but among kids these days, it's not as much as it is among their parents or like how their parents view them. Because Mm -hmm. I feel like for many kids telling their parents, Oh, I want to see a therapist. Their parents are like, Oh, what's wrong with you? Like, yeah. So how would you guys, like in a situation like that, because I feel like there's so many people who are going through the situation where they may want to see a therapist, but the people around them or their parents might not be understanding that. I guess, how would you go about um, communicating that to a parent or like teaching a parent about like why a therapist is beneficial for you? Yeah, I think that takes, you know, that take that's a very difficult question. I remember uh, trying to answer it in the last podcast and being like, wow, this is a, lo- <laughs> this is a loaded question. Um <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, for immigrant parents, it's not their fault, you know, that was how they were raised. And that's how mental illness was perceived for generations and generations on end. And you don't know if a family member was suffering from mental illness, because they could have just been a chronic alcoholic and, and, and no one really talked about why they're drinking, you know, why they might be depressed. So in those situations, I would recommend reaching out to a, tr- a trusted uh, individual like a teacher or a counselor, or I know at Gun some Stanford fellows come and visit every once in a while, you know, setting up an appointment with them, finding someone that can help you communicate with your parents. Because at the same time, you're still only teenagers, right? You're still learning so much about yourself and so much about how you can communicate such a foreign concept to your parents. So having someone else to help you there um, is is extremely valuable. It could even be your pediatrician. You know, you set up a, a doctor's appointment with your pediatrician. There's times when your pediatrician will speak with you alone and you can explain your concerns about your own mental health and they can help bridge that gap as well. So really trying not to do it alone uh, if it doesn't uh, work out when you speak with your parents one-on-one mm-hmm. is is very important to getting where you need to be in terms of access to mental health. And Chanel, what do you think? Yeah, I think that was a wonderful answer. And I'll say the same for me. It took me a really long time to go to therapy. You know, I think with these, the suicides, they felt like communal traumas. And for a long time, I thought, I don't feel 
Like, who am I to get special attention when it's affected thousands of students? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it took me a long time to realize how it had manifested in me personally and why that needed to be addressed. Um, and I also like the only reason I went was because there was a few weeks until I had to testify for the first time. And I, I knew that I physically would not go into the courtroom. Like I, I just remember thinking you will have to drag me before I show up, but I had no choice. And so I went to therapy almost like seeking a physical trainer. Like I have a race in a few weeks and you have to prepare me or else I will pass out. You know, it it like it, it was, I didn't even think of it as a mental thing. It was like, I need to be trained to hold these emotions in me to develop confidence, to be able to speak my truths. And so for me, it was, it, it hit a point of like, you need to do this in order to survive. And I wish that um, you don't have to get to that point before, you know, like proving that you need these services, because really it's such a, I hope that one day it's just such a natural part of life and a part of all our routines that we're constantly checking in with ourselves and recognizing that it doesn't make you de- defective. It just makes you aware of, of what's going on. So, yeah. And, um, and yeah. Um, Sophia, I really commend you for having a therapist uh, in high school. I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. it's, it's very early in the game and that's, very valuable, you know, going to college, you're going to experience another set of obstacles. And uh, I think it's very mature of you to have gone out of your way to get a therapist. And I think I would recommend every high schooler get a therapist if they could, because mm-hmm. um, it really sets you up with some tools and the ability to reflect, uh, which helps to um lessen the the force of the obstacles you experience in the future so Sophia that's really great yeah and I'll also say that like when I remember in Mr. Dunlap's class I obviously I would do like double assignments like I loved reading and everything and I remember there was a time where I wasn't doing well and he pulled me aside and said I real like I I see that you're not raising your hand or haven't been doing the readings and it it wasn't in a punishing tone. It came from a place of like reflection mm-hmm. and was encouraging introspection. And I think if a parent can say, hey, why is there a dip in your performance? Instead of that being a sign of personal failure, seeing it as a sign of, oh, what's happening? You know, what behavior is causing this and how do I help this? Because I, I think for too long, we feel like if we're not doing well, like performing well, it's because something's wrong with us when really it's just a sign that we're being possessed by an illness or something is weighing on us that we do not individually have the ability to overcome on our own. And so instead of punishing that lapse, we need to just nourish it and really look at it in order to move past it. 
Yeah. yeah. And and what was your I, I mean, I based off how I read the book, it sounds like you you switched therapists um over time. Is that true? Uh yeah, just as a result of moving. Yeah, and I think the question I had was how was that transition for you? Because um, based on my experience as a as a resident, sometimes it can be very scary for for people to uh, have to switch therapists. You know, someone you know, because this is a trusted individual that you're you're really sharing your, your your I mean, for lack of better words, deepest and darkest secrets. So, how was that transition for you? Was it was it difficult? Did you have any obstacles? Yeah, it definitely. Um take some time. I mean, what's funny though, is that something that feels so secretive to you, if you're telling it to someone who's heard hundreds of stories before and has seen the same kind of scenarios play out again and again, um, it, it's to, from their perspective, it's not this like whopping big I just my dad's a retired therapist and I remember him always saying it's very hard to surprise me like Mm. if I were to be like oh my gosh I tried pot he'd be like okay and you know like what (laughs) Like, (laughs) there's just I think on their end they've heard and seen so much and on our end it's so big because it's in our in the in the context of our lives, it's huge, you know? And so I, I think even writing the memoir, there's nothing in that entire book that someone else hasn't experienced before. And so that's been such a relief to recognize. Yeah. I think um, that's definitely (laughs) interesting to point out because I think that like when you go to a therapist, once again, like it's really hard to surprise them. And so when, um, when you say something, you're like, oh my God, like this blah, blah, blah is affecting me and blah, blah, blah. Isn't it terrible? And they're just like, yeah, it's almost like comforting <laughs> yeah. to know that like, oh wait, like maybe it's not that, or not that it's not I, that bad, but like it's, exactly. you can overcome it. Like it's, it's huge, but it doesn't mean that makes you weird, exactly. right? Yeah. It's just yeah. that you have joined a club of greater people <laughs> who have also been through yeah. something similar. Yeah. And yeah. and then you, you can kind of realize, well, oh, Wow, they actually know what I'm talking about. And, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And 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 you're They've like heard it before. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I think just having the, a therapist yeah. almost like de-isolates you a little bit mm-hmm. from your own mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just having some form of being able to spill out those thoughts, um, uh, whether that's in writing or to another uh, to a mental health professional, is is very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um. And the last question I had, I wanted to ask before kind of uh, uh, giving it over to Sophia with the the questions her colleagues have had is, Chanel, you talk about the, you are in your book, there's two sayings that you have. One is, it's okay not to be okay. And the other one is, denying darkness does not bring anyone closer to light. And you touch on this briefly, but I just wanted to ask you them straightforward, uh, what you mean by these? Um, yeah, just nothing will ever be solved without revisiting the core truth of it. And I think so much of the time we have an aversion to heaviness 
and we crave lightness when the healing is only going to happen when you can sit inside that heaviness. And I think, like I said, I was really worried about sharing what had happened with other people. I thought no one's going to want to take part in this story or be near me as a result of it. Um, and then I learned that people who love you want to show up for you. Like they don't want to be on a sunny stroll when you're in a dark storm. They would rather be in that storm with you than off somewhere, you know, having an ice cream sundae. And that was so incredible to realize um, that I should ask for help because people want to help you. The people who love you want to help you and show up for you whatever that means. Um, and I, I just wish I had known that sooner and allowed myself to be loved sooner and allowed myself to be helped sooner. And just recognizing that that's maybe I'm the vulnerable one for a while, but then whenever it happens in their life, I'll be there for them too. And there will always be this you know, like natural ebb and flow, um, but that you are never like indebted to other people or weighing on them too much. There's no such thing as too much. It's just that, um, yeah, it's it's such a, and when someone comes to me with their story and is like, sorry, I didn't mean to like tell this to you or I'm sorry if this is too much for you. I just say, thank you. You know, like, thank you for trusting me with this gift. Thank you for allowing yourself to put it down. You know, for me, that's an honor because it's a compliment to say that I've created a space that's safe enough for them to put the story down. So, yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me, there was a point in, in high school, I believe it was my freshman year. Uh, I was in we were talking about lanes. I was in the highest math lane, and uh, you were in the highest lane. Yeah, but uh, it was it was only for a short time. <laughs> so, uh, there was a point where you know our teacher was handing handing the papers back, and they put them face down. Right, they put them yeah. face down so other people can't see what you got. And I was tripping. I was sweating. I was like, "Oh my god! I need, please, please! I hope I didn't fail another test." And I turn around. This is like 54%. And I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> my life is over. And I think, and I remember, you know, I had a basketball game right after. Well, you were in the 50th percentile, bro. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> and I uh, was walking to the gym because we had a basketball <laughs> game afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then out of nowhere, I just started bawling. Um, and I was just like, I have no idea where these emotions Aww. are coming from. And I realized now I was just putting so much pressure on myself to perform, um, without giving myself a chance to be vulnerable. And you talk about the word vulnerable, right? Because I think even with the improvements in terms of stigma surrounding mental health today, vulnerability, in my opinion, opinion is still seen as a sign of weakness. You know, people say, oh, you have to have thick skin, you have to work through it. And I think that's where I went, to, got to that tipping point and just started crying. But I mm -hmm. think vulnerability is, it's important to realize that it's actually a strength, you know, as you alluded to, and an opportunity to 
learn more about yourself, which ultimately makes you more self-aware and it allows you to better handle um, experiences of vulnerability moving forward because vulnerability honestly will never end. But the important thing is realizing that rather than it being a weakness, accepting it with open arms is a strength. Totally. And can I also mention that I, I was in the second to lowest math lane, by the way. Um, and I remember I like, you could tell who was in which lane based on your textbook. So I didn't even <laughs> want to do my homework in the AC because then someone <laughs> see my textbook and realize I'm in the second lowest lane. Um, but I, as soon as I got into UCSB, I called the admissions office and I said, hey, if I drop math right now, will I be rescinded? No, and I walked into my math class the next day, and I quit math, dude. I was like, "Hey, I'm not in math anymore." My teacher's like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, it's not you, it's me." I'm like, "I'm with math," and like, I left math. I didn't even finish high school math. Um, Oh my gosh! But and then, but it's like I don't know. Like I knew what I wanted to do already, (laughs) so I was freeing up my freeing up my time but um yeah vulnerability the only reason i'm doing well today is because i asked for help you know is because i allowed myself to not be well for a super long time like the only reason i got through trial was because i quit my job and devoted most of my time in between court proceedings to sleeping, you know? And I think if I had kept up the mentality, you have to be high earning, you have to show up every day, I would not have made it through. Um, I think we're not trained really to listen to our bodies um, and our bodies do a lot of communicating. You know, just like you said, when you're, you we're not planning on crying, but you were stopped in your tracks because something in you imploded and mm-hmm. literally forced you to pause and, you know, hyperventilate and cry. And that's your body internalizing so much of that stress that mentally you can ignore for a long time, but your body has a capacity and it's not going to let you, you know, just keep studying and not sleeping and not eating properly. Like it has a limit. And so it's, it's going to be the one that's going to break you and like literally make you break down and make you sick or make you stop, or you're going to do that mental upkeep to prevent that burnout from happening. But one way or another, something's going to give. Um, And so I think part of vulnerability is just stopping to listen to how you're doing. Um. And knowing that, yeah, any detour from your quote unquote plan is not falling behind. It's just a part of everything. Yeah. Just like you said, um, if you yourself don't address it or like take the chance to look at yourself and reflect a little bit or to make sure that you're okay, your body is going to do it for you. Um, Just like Parat said, like I had an experience where in sophomore year, right after the student suicide, I... I thought I was fine. And then one day I missed the bus to school and like had a complete mental breakdown and yes. couldn't even go to school after. And I think that was just like, that was 
<laughs> that was my broad math test moment where I was like, oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, got to check in with myself here. So I think at one point your body's going to force you to do it. And so yeah. you might as well address it before that breakdown. And it'll probably choose one little thing going wrong for exactly. everything to fall apart. Mm-hmm, Absolutely. Sure. So Sophia, I understand you had some questions from your colleagues as well. Yeah, um, obviously, when we when we shared on social media a few weeks ago that we would have the chance to be talking to you, Chanel, obviously, like everyone was super excited because a lot of people have read your book around here. And of course, you're like an alumni of our high school. So everyone's yeah. like, wow, someone famous went to our school. <laughs> um, but yeah, we collected some questions and uh, I'll read a few of them to you right now. So the first question someone asked was uh, suggestions for ways to express yourself. Ooh. Um, I would say, again, don't ever say I can do this, but I can't do this. I think I had an idea of who I was and all of those things were not true. And it's really funny because like I did debate in high school because I thought it would look good. I literally lost every single round. And I remember I was such an agreeable person. Like I would literally go to these debate tournaments and that like argue about the death penalty. And half the time I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Like do what I said. Like I had no, no bone of confrontation in my body. And I think truly expressing myself only came along when I um, cared deeply about things like, I am an activist now, but when I think of the word activist, it's sort of a weird label for me because to me, it just feels like I'm a human who deeply cares about things and other people. You know what I mean? And it's like, I'm operating from that point. I'm not operating from a point of having an extra curricular or choosing a particular topic to um, amplify. It just comes from a place of deep caring. I think, yeah, just letting in the book, I talked about how on physics tests or any tests, if I didn't know the answer, I would draw um, someone shrugging, (laughs) but it'd be like a really good drawing. And the little person would say like, I don't know. And I remember thinking like, yeah, at least if the teacher thinks I'm dumb at physics, they'll know that I'm good at drawing. So it's my way of saying like, this is my two cents. Um, so yeah, in any way that it appears, just go with that, you know, and I still right now writing has been my medium. I still want to think about other mediums like film and cartooning and animation. And now I just, I'm just open to all of them. Yeah. I think that that's so important for high schoolers to hear because like you said, you did debate because you thought it would look good on paper or some, like a lot of, I won't say everything, but definitely there are high schoolers, I think, including myself who did things just to look good for it. And because of that, we didn't care enough to be passionate about it, or we didn't care enough about it to have that be like a medium of expression for us. Yeah. Um, I like, I was wearing a blazer from Mervyn's and I was like, what am I doing here? Uh-huh. <laughs> so it took a while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, in undergrad. I was mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, basically building up my application to get into medical school, right? So I had to do some research. And there were weekends where I was just in like, I called it the dungeon, but like in the basement of like this old lab working with like mice and like (laughs) injecting them with like different solutions to like test for things. And I'm like, what am I doing here? (laughs) It just smelled so bad. There's just like hundreds of mice cages with like their poop everywhere. Um, But yeah, I was doing it to get into medical school. You know, I didn't necessarily enjoy what I was doing, but at every, at every level of of your life, there's moments like that. So great question. I love how the question was, how do you express yourself? And Brad's like, listen, I went downstairs and I plumped up these little mice with little toxins and they pooped everywhere. It's like, thank you for your insight. Yeah, thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Remember that, you know how when you walk into the library, there's like a little gallery into the right, you go to the bathroom, into the left is the library. Mm -hmm. I remember I had one of my art pieces from Miss Messenger's class selected to hang in that gallery. Mm. And I I remember thinking, I was like, some guy is going to walk by this piece and be like, oh my gosh, like who made that? And then he's going to see my name in the little corner and he's going to like fall in love with me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I had all these fantasies about how my skills would like get people to fall in love with me because my looks were like not there yet. So things like never happened. Yeah. Or later, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah. Broad story about mice was really fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like this past year, uh, in senior year, I found myself in physics and I hate physics. Like I was in AP Mm -hmm. physics and like throughout Mm -hmm. the year, I was like, why am I doing this? Oh, right. I need to get into college. Um, But I think a lot of times or sometimes that's a little bit unavoidable, especially in this community. And I think like at least find some way to to balance that out because I've been doing theater my whole life. And at the (sighs) beginning of high school, um, my parents told me or they didn't. My parents have never forced me to do anything, but they kind of suggested, oh, maybe you should quit because you should focus more time on academics. Uh, And I was like, how about no? Because I realized that without that outlet, I would just be doing physics with no, I guess, happy portion of release in my life. So I think it ultimately helps you. Like, that's what I think people overlook is like, it's the only thing enabling you to do well right exactly so it's not inhibiting you from doing this it's literally the foundation in which you will Mm -hmm. be able to succeed in other parts of your life exactly because it just helps like balance you out and all of that it really is a foundation but yeah i liked that question um our second question is of all the people you've met at gun who has had the greatest impact on you um i would say mr dunlap just for you know, I was in a few of his classes through my four years there. I remember I was so obsessed with um, like linking quotes in books to different quotes. I'd be like on page 24, it goes, <laughs> it like relates to the flying bird and the pear on page 85. And he put me on a quotations diet where he was literally like, you can only say so many quotations during one class. But um. uh he i also remember when so the in order to see a counselor you had to put a little pink slip in this little tray outside of the counselor's door Mm -hmm. and there were so many slips and i remember there was a two-week wait and 
I super wasn't doing well. And I remember Mr. Dunlap was like, hey, like I said, he noticed. And then I said, yeah, but I, I tried, but no one's, I haven't heard from anyone. And he was like, interesting. And I remember walking home and I get this call and the counselor, it's the counselor. And she's like, hey, Chanel, I'm here with Mr. Dunlap in my office and I'd like to bring you in. Like just the image of him standing in her office, like with his arms crossed or something and just being like, you need to, this is urgent mm-hmm. and needs to be addressed. And also as a teacher who's busy with so many different things to take time out of his day to do that, that knowing that he was willing to do that and that it was important to him was probably, it was more important than any of the follow-up sessions that I would have. You know, I think a lot of the time it's not only the work that you do, it's that people, to to see people care for you and advocate for you and also recognize that what you're going through is... um real you know i think everything all the affirmations brought was saying earlier about like these things matter and they need to be treated you know i think we're so good at downplaying these things and talking ourselves into ignoring them and priding ourselves in being self-sufficient um and i just think when you have those voices who say you know stop like this means something to me and what happens to you means something to me. That feeling that you get is, is really valuable. Yeah. So just like the, like, I think um, in high school, you sometimes people feel like a nobody and to have somebody care about you and, you know, do something like that to like take care of you is a really good gesture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So we have another question that's if you could tell your high school self one thing, what would it be? Oh, little Chanel. (laughs) I would really just say, be so gentle because you just have no idea at all, like how your life is going to play out. And it's parts are going to be so terrible and parts are going to be wonderful beyond anything you could have ever anticipated for yourself um i would say your eczema's gonna fade well we'll wait we'll wait for winter in new york city because that's when it really comes in hot so (laughs) um but i think yeah i just god remembering i remember thinking when i was older i was like what like this is my face like when you're little, you're like, oh, I wonder what I'll look like when I grow up. Yeah. And I, up and I was like, this is it. <laughs> but it's not it. <laughs> and now I love my face. I love my dimples. I love a lot of stuff um, that I just uh, didn't really have the capacity to do before. So I would just say, like, stick it out. And just like truly, it is only the tip of the beginning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the thing you're talking about, um, how like the, you, you are one person, but you have, you know, your past selves, your future selves, and there's just so much more to look forward to. Yeah, honor all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so our last question is, how do you think your experience at Gun affected your outlook on mental health? But I think also combined with that question, what are some things that Gun or the Palto community taught you about mental health that maybe you learned differently outside of it? Or you maybe there were some things that were taught to you, for example, stigma that you had to unlearn um, when you were older? Um, I would say, oh, that's like hard to summarize into the tiny final acorn <laughs> of this conversation. Um, would like, what is my greatest takeaway or what? Sure. Let's make that the question. Um, I would just say that. I would just say be really patient. Um, I think it's okay that not everything is going to be solved immediately. I think also it's really okay to be sad. Like you think about the losses that happen. I think it's okay to be sad forever about those losses. You know what I mean? And it's not so much about how do I become happy again and how do I become just as productive. I think so much of life is learning to live with those sadnesses and thinking about how they occupy their lo- our lives. Um, and that's completely okay. I think we it, there are no negative feelings and positive feelings that... Um, that it's okay to have the whole spectrum of them existing in you. Like even for me, I think finishing the book I thought was going to, you know, solve everything or that I would be fully healed or that, you know, my dreams came true and I live in this city and, and that's true. But I also, you know, upon finishing the book, I had to finally accept that not everything is going to be fixed and that there will be things I will live with for the rest of my life. Um, But it's going to be okay because I know how to carry them now and I know how to think about them. And I know when I have that breakdown or, you know, explosion of feeling or outburst of anger, I know how to address it and to sit with it. And so I think moving forward, um, I I just wouldn't reduce whatever you're going through to bad periods and good periods and sadness and happiness. It's all, it's all connected and um, it will always be fluctuating and your well-being will depend on your ability to just sort of go with it and ride it out and take care of yourself and the people you love along the way. Thank you for sharing that. Um, before we end, we actually kind of had a little bit of surprise for you, Chanel. Um, so you, <laughs> yeah. So in the back of your book, you will have a few. You mentioned a few of your teachers that you've had throughout the years. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, oh my gosh. I just shout them out all day. <laughs> yeah, we reached out to some of them, and um, it was a little bit last minute because we were like, "Oh my god, wouldn't it be cool if we contacted some of her old teachers to see if they had anything to say to you or share with you." Um, and we got a few responses, so I would like to read them to you. Okay. Um, first, I talked to Mr. Gleason, who's the art teacher. Oh. 
Westminster um, Gleason. Yeah. And he emailed back saying, Hello, Chanel. Your story allows us to see something wonderful in people. Your strength in standing up gives us all strength, and I'm honored to know you. Oh, Mr. Dunlap gosh. wrote, and these are words. Um, Mr. Dunlap, he took words from the rec letter he wrote for you. And this is what he said. Deeply empathetic and sensitive, Chanel was affected by the recent loss of schoolmates. These feelings motivated her to action from putting signs up near the train tracks, offering to listen to anyone to being involved in a student-run peer helping group. She is the student her friends turn to when they need someone to listen. Indicative of the maturity and self-awareness I admire in Chanel, she knows that, while helpful for those friends, this takes an emotional toll on her, so she has identified her own resources ready for when she needs them. She is warm and optimistic, and she has a great sense of humor. True then, these words mean even more now. You are an inspiration. Warmly, Mr. Dunlap. Wow. Wow. Um, and this is Miss Owen. Oh, Miss Owen. Owen wrote, Dear Chanel, first of all, I live for the little illustrations you post on Instagram. I love the sweet and funny stories about your childhood, especially when they feature Tiffany. I'm guessing you had to change your cell <laughs> number, but I wanted, to I wanted you to hear the last three texts I sent you. Wednesday, September 9th, 2019. I'm sure you're being bombarded with messages and such, but I want you to know how proud we are, gun teachers. You're an incredibly brave and inspiring young woman. Saturday, October 5th, 2019. I don't know if this is still your number, but I wanted you to know that I just finished reading your memoir. Absolutely beautiful. Trying to figure out a way to have my students read it, for many reasons. The writing, the story, the message. You're absolutely brilliant. I hate that this happened to you, but your voice is important. You have a calling. Thank you for the blood, sweat, and tears that went into, that went into making this masterpiece. Tuesday, March 31st, 2020. Gosh, Chanel, I <laughs> a terrible. Thanks for asking. One of my favorite podcasts. And what a beautiful surprise to hear your voice, laughing and crying as you tell your story. Chanel, I've been one of your biggest fans since the JV volleyball years. Thank you for using your voice and your art to change the world. And you have changed the world. Love, Mrs. Owen. Okay, well, I am fully <laughs> unraveled. That. <laughs> oh my God. That's so incredible. You see, we have the best teachers. Like, I, for everything we talked about, there was so much warmth on that campus. Um, mm -hmm. And it just, uh, I, I do feel so hopeful with how things are going now. And, yeah, again, there's like, I think all those pieces of me, like Mr. Dunlap said, are still, still there. They're just like in the more evolved form. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Your teachers, these teachers were super excited to get to say something to you. So. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. Is there I anything to you give them to flowers? Say to them? Yeah. Um, Mr. Gleason, thank you for introducing. Well, he would play Boney there in class, which was amazing. <laughs> I also learned my Photoshop skills in this class. And I'll just say, like, I loved that one hour of the day in his classroom with that big square. You know how the table is like a big square? Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was like the moment of the day where I could fully exhale. Um, and he was just so funky. I loved <laughs> I loved that class. Um, and then, yeah, Dunlap obviously just like enabled all of my English nerding out, like made us shirts that we all wore to the AP English test. Did yeah. I know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. um, 
what a time to be alive. And I remember it was a period which sucked because it was usually over by the end of the day. And, you know, it was over quickly. And then I would always have math like F or G periods, which was like such a fart time. Oh, I was like sweaty <laughs> from lunch. I wanted to take a nap. Like, so you know what? I'll just also say my math teachers were so nice. And I remember they would always like if I didn't do well on tests, they're like, it's occasional. You'll do better next time. And in my head, I was always like, I hate to break it to you, but I'm for sure not. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and then Miss Owen, yeah, I was like her her volleyball assistant coach to these like seventh graders from JLS. And that mm-hmm. was such a hoot. And they would like the girls would circle up and I would do storytelling about my lame high school life in the beginning of practice. And Miss Owen would allow this. But she's like the embodiment of sunshine. And so I'm just so grateful for all my teachers at Gun. Can you hear my dog howling? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Your dog is very cute. <laughs> she is singing. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, Chanel, thank you so much for coming in today. And of course, to Brat for being such a wonderful co-host. And before we end, Chanel, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience for today, many of whom are current high schoolers or students about to enter college and look up to you as a role model? Oh. I just, I'm so excited for you all. I just hope you are open to finding out whoever the heck you're going to be. Um, I am in awe when I look at other classmates and people like Barat and just seeing, I don't know, like seeing where we've been spit out after all of this and just being like, wow, we're okay and we're going to be okay. And so... Um, yeah, I I just, I hope you get excited and I hope you are just so gentle to yourself. And, um, if you're ever going through a hard time, know that, you know, all of us speaking today have been there too. Um, so we join you there. Thank you for those last words. Um, Once again, thank you, Bharat. Yeah, thank you, Bharat, for co-hosting with me. And of course, to Chanel for giving us the opportunity to speak with you today. Lastly, we'd also like to thank our audience for tuning into this special episode of Project Oyster. If you would like to be a guest speaker, contact us through email at studio.projectoyster at gmail.com or shoot us a DM at Project Oyster on Instagram. We'd love to help any of you guys in sharing your stories. To learn more about Project Oyster and our mission, visit our website at studioprojectoyster.com. Thank you for listening. Remember to take care of yourselves and we'll see you in the next episode.